Hello everyone, and... To Grappling with Canada. As usual, I'm your host, The Taxman, and I'm very excited to be bringing today's episode to everyone today. But before we get into all that, and the fantastic guests that I have to provide, shall we say, unique insight onto today's subject matter, I just want to touch on briefly the tremendous feedback that we got from last month's episode covering Canada's greatest athlete, Gene Kaniski. Uh, thanks very much to everybody for the very kind words on that episode. We're going to be talking a little bit later in the program about some of the reviews that we got regarding that episode. But more importantly than that, that episode smashed every single download, listen, view, whatever metric you want to use on whatever platform you're using. Uh, that episode blew everything out of the water. So thank you very much, everybody, for checking it out and for passing it along to other people. Because really, without you guys passing along to other people, then this program really doesn't go anywhere. Although it is a tremendous uh, look at the history of professional wrestling in Canada and the people who made it what it was. Uh, the reality is, without you guys helping spread the word, it would fall on deaf ears. So thank you very much, everybody, for passing the program along. If this is your first time tuning into the program, I would highly suggest that you go back in the archives. We have tremendous episodes on, like I said, the aforementioned Gene Kaniski, Canada's Greatest Athlete. We've also covered Gail Kim, Dino Bravo, and Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling. So those are in the archives, and they are tremendous listens. So I'd highly suggest to you, if this is your first uh, time with the program... Uh, obviously, don't don't jump off this one and go to those ones, but uh, feel free after this program to go back and listen to the previous episodes in the archives. Speaking of what's going on with this program, I'm very happy to announce that we finally have a Facebook presence and Instagram as well. So on Facebook, I would highly invite everybody to come check us out. Uh, Grappling with Canada, there's a Facebook group and page. Uh, very easy to find. Just search with your little Facebook search bar, Grappling with Canada as well. On Instagram, you can also find us uh, at Grappling with Canada as well. Uh, as usual, you can always find us on Twitter as well at six underscore podcast that's the outlier and then once again as usual on youtube youtube.com slash c slash six-sided podcast and we'll be going over all of that at the end of the show as well but i wanted to get those in early uh just because uh those are brand new so i would really highly uh ask suggest twist your arm if you will to uh everybody go join that facebook group uh i would love to have some discussions about uh, this episode in particular but also uh, your thoughts ideas suggestions about episodes that we previously done and as well if you're going to leave uh, reviews on that hopefully they're the five star variety but if you leave reviews on there i'm going to actually start reading reviews on the ends of these programs so if you leave a review you know it's going to get some airtime so once again uh facebook instagram just search wonderfully grappling with canada will come up and come join the uh come join the conversation and uh, let's have a lot of fun with it as well i will also mention that we have a patreon page patreon.com slash grappling with canada for as low as three dollars a month you can uh, help support the show uh you get this show early and as well you get a shout out for being a patron or a patron if you will so once again patreon.com slash grappling with canada three bucks a month 
is uh, get you in the door, if you will. So go go ahead and check that out. But more importantly, on to today's subject matter. Now, today is going to be on really wrestling legend, not even just Canadian wrestling legend, because he made such an international name for himself as well, uh, Billy Two Rivers. Now, in this episode, I was so, so, so fortunate to actually be able to have a conversation with Billy Two Rivers that you're going to be able to hear later on in this program. I also have a wrestling historian and the individual behind SlamWrestling.net, Greg Oliver. I had a tremendous conversation with him leading into my conversation with Billy Two Rivers. And I just want to say as well, this interview with Billy Two Rivers would not have happened if not for Tom Fenario. Uh, you're going to hear a little excerpt from him uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but really, I, I reached out to him, and he reached out to Billy Two Rivers' daughter, and she gave the okay, and so did he, and uh, and Tom's the one who put me in contact. So, Tom Fenario, if you're listening, thank you very much, and, and I owe you a big debt of gratitude for really getting this program off the floor. Uh, so once again, Tom Fenario from APTN, uh, I, I can't say enough good things about him. Speaking of people I can't say enough good things about, in the interview that you're going to hear later with Billy Two Rivers, I'm almost speechless to really go into detail about it. And you're going to hear in the audio with him, I really just kind of lay out for most of the program because what in the world would I be able to offer, say, or reiterate that he doesn't do a a good job of doing himself? Uh, The man is truly inspiring we talked the first time I talked with him I was very very nervous and and he actually had me slow down about a 33 and a third because I was just so excited and just couldn't contain myself so he had a good laugh at my expense but he was such a tremendous uh, person to talk to and truly it's it's an interview that I personally I've listened to it several times uh, not just editing but just sitting in awe again of just the conversation that we were able to have. We spent almost two hours on the phone. He was so gracious with his time and I I was just, I was in awe. So I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but when you hear the portion of the program uh, where we are having our conversation, you're not going to be, be hearing a whole lot of me. And there's for very good reason that that is the case. And it's because I was just in awe, and I just wanted to sit back and absorb as much information and knowledge as I possibly could. So I'm I'm deeply humbled and deeply honored that I was able to have that conversation with him, and obviously deeply honored to be sharing that conversation with all of you today. Now, there are a few things that I need to get into before we get any further into this episode, and that is in regards to Canada's history with indigenous people now Canada is a fantastic country to live in I love living here my family has lived here for three generations now my kids are obviously going to live here as well that being said as as great of a country as Canada is we have a very checkered and actually unfortunately continue to have a very checkered past and present with our First Nations people Uh, The way that our population and government treats and deals with them in often time or often cases is still abhorrent even in the year 2021. 
it's really a sad state of affairs. And things have gotten better over my 35 years on this earth. However, they are in no way means, shape, or form where they need to be. And there's a, a lot of subject matter that he goes into that I am simply not qualified to speak about because the reality is I'm just a white dude from Winnipeg. And, and there's a lot of personal opinions that I have about how our First Nations people have been treated throughout the years and continue to be treated. I can't go into all of that right now, but I will say that I would highly suggest that if you, the listener at home, if you're Canadian, if you're not Canadian, it doesn't really matter where you're from. Take the time, do a little bit of research, involve yourself and immerse yourself a little bit in what our First Nations people have gone through throughout the years, uh, whether it's been, we'll say, back backhanded treaty uh, negotiations that were done in very poor faith, whether it was the residential school system, whether it was the scoop in the 60s, on and on and on. It's still a very large blemish on this country that I would hope to God, you know, by the time I'm elderly, we'll say, but still on this earth that I can actually see some some very meaningful and very deserved progress being made towards towards the treatment of our First Nations people. So I apologize a little bit, everyone. I don't want to start this program on a downer, but there's no way that I could do this program and not talk about an issue like that. So I just wanted to get that off my chest. Once again, do some reading, do your research, talk to somebody who knows. And there's a lot of people out there that know a lot more than me. Like I said, I'm just I'm just one guy trying to do the right thing. And uh, if this program can at least facilitate a little bit of that, then I believe it's done its job. So once again, uh, we are going to get into the crux of this program. Before we get into it, I'm going to be playing an interview conducted by the aforementioned Tom Fenario with uh, Billy Two Rivers. Now, this was done in 2017 for the APTN. So you're going to hear... A little teaser trailer, if you will, about some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about with Billy Rivers himself, as well as with Greg Oliver. But I'm going to play this audio, and on the other side, we are going to jump right in the program. Please enjoy. Over here, this is uh, one of the outfits that I wore when I was wrestling. The name Billy Two Rivers is famous the world over, mainly for longtime wrestling fans who remember his 24 years in the ring. So you, you never played a you never played a, a bad guy. Uh, no, okay. I didn't have a choice. They loved me. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Two Rivers made his debut in 1953 after being trained by fellow Mohawk wrestler Don Eagle. He combined a fierce wrestling style with colorful regalia to travel the world. The United Kingdom, Japan, the United States all came out to cheer him on. Well, most of them. Right before a match in Hanover, Germany, a spectator criticized Two Rivers for wearing an inauthentic, pan-indigenous outfit. Two Rivers went on to explain that even though he's Mohawk, he was proud to wear boots made by the Huron-Wendat and a headdress gifted to him by the Blood Tribe in Alberta. He said, uh, what is this? He says, you're not, uh, he says, uh, you don't, uh, you're not Indian, you're, what are you? I said, yeah, I'm Indian. I'm a native of North American Indian. He says, well, what are you dressed like this for? 
I says, because I'm an ambassador and I represent the people across the country. But being an ambassador wasn't enough to make him feel safe when it came to wrestling in places like Belfast during the late 60s. Uh, at night, the soldiers would come out with dark faces. They'd sit, stand in a corner not to be seen, waiting for the rebels or something. And uh, uh, the greatest concern I had is that they would, they would put a bomb underneath the ring or something, you know. That wouldn't be the last time in his life Two Rivers would end up in a militarized zone. Got a call about 5.30, 6, almost 6 o'clock. And it was Joe and he says, Billy, he says, uh, uh, the bridge is blocked. I said, what? He says, yeah, he says, the Mercer Bridge is blocked. After ending his wrestling career in the mid-70s, Two Rivers became a council chief for the Mohawk Council of Ganawage. He was among the leadership group charged with brokering peace after Ganawage barricaded the Mercier Bridge in support of Ganasatage during the Yoka Crisis. And despite having traveled the world over, the summer of 90 was witness to the worst act of racism he ever saw, right next door to his own community in Montreal. In what's become known as the Rocks at Whiskey Trench incident, a convoy of Mohawk women, children, and elders leaving Ganawage were stoned in their cars. The fellows going around to the different uh, businesses that were there, I says, come on out and let's stop these Indians, these people. They didn't care. After 20 years on council, Two Rivers retired in 1998. Since then, he's done acting in films and shows like Mohawk Girls. Had a photo of himself used on the cover of a Van Morrison album, first without his permission, before they settled out of court, and served as an elder for the Assembly of First Nations. But most of all, Two Rivers is proud of his nine grandchildren, many of whom speak Kanyagahaga, the Mohawk language, with him. It also appears that they have inherited his athleticism. I just want to point out to you, I have a picture on there on a, from a number of pictures where my granddaughter won her championship for Greater Montreal, I believe. To say that Two Rivers has lived a rich life is to state the obvious, and to assume that he doesn't have at least a few more chapters would likely be a mistake. I don't know how much longer I'll be in this this, this world over here. I would, uh, I'm, uh, I'm trying to pass everything that I know on to the next generation. Tom Fenario, APTN National News, Kahnawake, Mohawk Territory. Billy Two Rivers was born May 5, 1935. He is a Mohawk retired professional wrestler. He began wrestling professionally in 1953 and competed until 1977. During his career, he wrestled in the United States, United Kingdom, Japan, and naturally in Canada, as well as many other countries like Germany and others. Uh, after retiring from wrestling, he became a leader of the Mohawk Nation on the Kahnawake Reservation. He played a major role in the blockade of the Mercier Bridge during the 1990 Oka Crisis, which you're going to hear a little bit later about. Uh, he's also appeared in multiple movies. Now, to go into a little bit deeper detail into the career of Billy Two Rivers, I'm very happy to be joined on the program by his wrestling historian, and the man behind SlamWrestling.net, Greg Oliver. So I'm going to throw it to my conversation right now with Greg Oliver. All right, very happy to be joined on the program this afternoon by historian Greg Oliver. Greg, how are you doing? 
I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, Andy. No problem. Um, just before we get into our obviously main subject matter today, I tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, if, assuming that they may not be as familiar with you as I am. Well, there's a there's a good setup. Um, <laughs> long story short, uh, I was like a 15, 14 year old kid. Got into pro wrestling with Hulkamania running wild all over me. I started a newsletter, and um, my passion sort of grew from there. I quickly realized there was a lot more to what's out there in pro wrestling than the WWE. And it grew and it grew. And then my time at um, the Toronto Sun uh, coincided with the growth of the internet and the debut of the internet, and which also coincided, of course, with the probably the second really big national wrestling boom, what we sort of, just before the Attitude Era. And so all of a sudden I was drawn back into the world of wrestling again, and, and we started the Slam Wrestling website. It was going by the end of 1996, and uh, so I can really say I've been writing about wrestling for 35 years, which is insane. And speaking of Slam Wrestling, I actually just read your article last night about the Stone Cold Steve Austin special that was on A&E Biography. And uh, I thought you hit the nail on the head on that one. Um, a little bit lacking for people who are getting into the history of wrestling and the history of Stone Cold. So a little bit disappointing there, but I, I did enjoy your uh, your recap on that show. Thank you. I, I mean, it was what I expected, I guess. But, you know, you hold out hope when it's a big company like A&E that prides itself on, on doing such good work. Um, that they delivered something that was well done. I'm not saying it wasn't well done, but it certainly didn't challenge uh, anyone and, and bring out anything new. Uh, and there were uh, lots of opportunities there to tell some new Stone Cold stories, but they were the same old, same old. Now, outside of, obviously, your work with Slime Wrestling, you've authored and been in, in the process and production of, of multiple wrestling history books. Can you go into a little bit of detail about some of those projects? Well, it's even more than that. I guess I've been involved with publishing now for a long time. Uh, my first book came out in 2003, The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Canadians. Uh, then I teamed up with Steve Johnson as my tag team partner, and we did The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Tag Teams. And then we did The Heels. There was a book on Chris Benoit in there. Uh, we did Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, The Storytellers, which came out in 2019. Uh, I did you know, seven different hockey books, uh, biographies and autobiography, some historical books. Um, it's just been a wild ride. I've also laid out probably 40 books, wow. edited a few uh, books for ECW Press, um, self-published my own book, uh, two, two kids' books, and then I self-published the uh, Billy Van story. It's called Who's the Man, Billy Van, who was an actor. And uh, so it's been a, a fun, wild ride, and I... I it's been very fortunate that it coincides very nicely with the growth of my son, who is 14 now, so I was the stay-at-home dad. It's really crazy to think I got so much done in over all those years. But <laughs> people think it's a lot of work to write, and it is, but it's something that you can chip away at as opposed to being dive in sort of whole hog. Yeah, talking to some of the other authors that we've had on the program, they say the same thing. It's, you know, yes, you write a book, but it's the process, and it's, you know, months or years of, you know, chipping away and maybe you, maybe you write some now or, and, and you hit a block and then all of a sudden you're writing a ton because it just, it, you know, you get that flood of information or that revelation or whatever. To me, it's, it's very interesting. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you know, you may be, well, the storyteller's book that Steve Johnson and I did is a perfect example. Like, a lot of them were threads that were left over from working on the heels or the Heroes and Icons book or whatever it is, right? They're little things you never really tackled. Like, the whole story of Tuffy Truesdale, the guy who wrestled the alligator. So, you know, it's like, we really need to do a story on that. How do we work that into a book? So that eventually led the storytellers, and it was... You know, and that's great. I mean, I'm glad we got to tell his story. Uh, things don't always work out the way you want, though, right? I found his son, and we talked briefly. He was all excited about talking, and then I never got a hold of him again. He never oh, returned wow. calls. Wow. So you just don't know sometimes what's going to happen, whether someone's going to be around, whether someone's going to be open to talking. And then sometimes they surprise you, right? Everybody said that Don Jardine... The spoiler was going to be, you know, really tough to interview. He never really did many interviews, and I talked to him, and great big long interview, and, uh, you know, not long that after, he, he passed away. It was almost like it was his exit interview, and he yeah. knew that, but he <laughs> wow. didn't tell me that. So, yeah, you just don't know what's going to happen, um, and that's part of the fun of this business and writing, and you may find a rabbit hole and start going down it and come up three days later realizing, man, I got a lot of stuff on this guy nobody's ever heard of so speaking of down the rabbit hole a little bit um what was your first kind of introduction to billy two rivers and and as a side to that i know you had wrote written an article listen to me talk um almost uh, 15 or 20 years ago in regards to him and i think you interviewed him at that time but kind of how like what cued you on to billy two rivers and what led you down the hole of kind of seeing what he was about what his career was about if I'm remembering correctly, and again, we're talking, yeah, 20 years ago, um, it, it's just a name that comes up a number of times, and we took a lot of pride in the Canadian Hall of Fame that we had on Slam Wrestling, because we were part of Canoe.ca and the, this whole Sun Media Empire, and so I was trying to find all the different Canadians to talk to. One of the guys I really wanted to write about was Don Eagle, who was a Canadian champion, like a, a world champion in 1950. And you can't really tell the story of Don Eagle without talking about uh, Billy Two Rivers as well. So that led me to talking to people like Don Leo Jonathan about Don Eagle and, and talking to uh, Billy Two Rivers himself. And then once you start talking to Billy, he likes to talk. He's not a braggart at all. But he also will firmly put you in your place and explain to you what he did and what it meant. And so from that perspective, I think he was really refreshing compared to a lot of wrestlers who like to, hmm, how are we going to put it, really promote themselves <laughs> and really put themselves over. Billy wasn't really like that. Uh, and, and it was the politician in him. That also fascinated me, how, long, how much he spent in politics uh, and how important that was to him to represent his people and especially on the national scale when you get to the Oka crisis. So he was definitely in a really fascinating interview and got to meet him a few times um, at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame in Amsterdam, New York. Uh, he came to Toronto for one of my Titans in Toronto dinners. He's just an all-around good guy. I know we're jumping ahead in the program a little bit, but I echo your sentiments 100%. The I started reading or researching him as the wrestler, but then you read all the political background and all the machinations of his career after wrestling it's incredible and i i found for myself the more i read the more i was just inundated with this awe of what this man has actually accomplished in life 
like, yes, wrestling is a big deal for wrestling fans, but the political career that he has and how he's really shaped indigenous affairs in this country, I think is that's the big picture. And that's to me, what's so impressive about him and what he actually brings to, to the history of Canada. And then obviously the history of Canadian wrestling as well. Absolutely. And, uh, Coincidentally, on Slam, we're about to run an article about politicians uh, from that, you know, wrestlers that turn into politicians. And there's no one that compares to Billy Two Rivers, except for a guy named Tom Drake, who was also a lifetime politician down in um, Alabama. So those are people who took wrestling and made a lifetime out of it. Not like your uh, Jesse Ventura, who's obviously the biggest name. But, uh, you know, he was the, the state governor for only a little while, whereas Billy did this his whole life. Like, this is just what flows through him. And I, I'm glad it's being recognized. Um, and he probably needs to be recognized even more than he is. So in terms of his wrestling career, and obviously we're not going to go paint by numbers because I, I don't think that that's a fair way to do it. And, and there's no way that you would ever be able to go through a, a career like his and, and do it justice that way. But... When you were kind of researching his career and looking back on what he was doing in that real early 50s into the 60s, what were some of the things that were jumping out at yourself in terms of what he was doing, what he was able to accomplish at those times, considering where he came from? Well, the the whole history of the Mohawk out of Quebec there, it often ties in so much to New York and, and the the building of the big skyscrapers and stuff like that. So instead he went a different direction and he traveled all kinds of other places and, and really shared his culture. And we look back now, it was stereotypical in many ways, but yet it was also who he was and he wasn't pretending to be first nations, right? He was. So he was able to conduct himself with some real gravitas, right? And he was able to, explain to people where he came from, what the cultures were. He never played the, the silly cowboy and Indian kind of thing. So I really respected that. Of course, every promoter is going to, you know, be different wherever you are. And again, he's not a guy that's going to run down other promoters uh, or, or difficult times that he had. It's more like, this is my journey and this is who I am. And this is how I got here. Uh, of course, the, the biggest thing about Billy though was England. And how he became uh, such a big star there. Yes. Yeah, going through my research, just... Yes, he was a star in America, and you can understand why. There's still that fascination, them, with with, uh, Cowboys and Indians. I know it's a horrible way to say it, but it was still a fascination at then. And, you know, Western spaghettis, if you will, were still very mainstream and very in vogue at that time. So you can understand why there would be such a draw to a character like that in wrestling. Obviously, wrestling in the 50s into the 60s was still massive in, in America, especially the places that he was wrestling. But yeah, to me, it was incredible to read about, like, I can't remember who said it exactly, but there was, oh, Paula Duke, who who has said multiple times that he was, like Billy Two Rivers he's talking about, was a god in England. And to me, I you wouldn't think that somebody like him would translate over there just reading the face of it. But then you start hearing about 
what a showman he was. And then you actually speak to him. Like I got to speak with him and it's, it, there's no, no doubt why he would be so over in, in uh, England and other parts of the world. Well, that that's true, but you also have to take into account that uh, a lot of the U S territories were very heavyweight based and Billy two rivers was not a giant guy. So he never really headlined a lot of places in North America as the top draw. But then he got to England and they generally celebrated um, smaller wrestlers and they had ample TV time. So both things worked incredibly well in his favor. And he was able to get out there on TV and, and standing out compared to the rest of the, um, you know, English white guys. You know, how else do you put it, right? He really yep. stood out the same way Kendo Nagasaki did, you know, because he was so different than the rest of the other British wrestlers at the time uh and and billy two rivers really was a star in, in england there to put it into context we're talking about the size of billy two rivers he is six five and about 205 or 210 when he was wrestling in america or wrestling in england sorry it just it wasn't in, six five it, six six foot or so six right? foot sorry yes you're correct i apologize but yeah, but, he was on the smaller side. Smaller size for for that era, but he would but, be but on. In today's wrestling, oh my man, god, he'd be almost a giant. And that's not a knock on today's talent, but that's just you know how far it's come in in terms of progression. That's a very poor term to use, but that's where we are in in wrestling today. Well, but but back then they were able to have those territories, right? Columbus might be a smaller territory where the smaller guys would succeed. Uh, Seattle was a little bit like that. Whereas in Calgary, I mean, Stu Hart liked the big beefy guys, right? The football players. So it was a bigger man territory. But then, you know, they bring in Davey Boy and Dynamite, and it becomes a smaller man territory. And they start celebrating all those Japanese guys coming in from, you know, the Kichi Yamadas. And and but wrestling is supposed to, you know, change and ebb and flow. Uh, And it happened in Montreal there, right, where... Billy Two Rivers was a big part of the the Grand Prix promotion that the Vachons ran, but that had a limited shelf life. So he was able then to go, you know, do other things. Yeah, unfortunately, the Grand Prix experiment, if you will, but they were right up against uh, Lute International. Yeah, the, the Lute Aces. Yeah. yeah so the, the, the Aces. Yeah, so, you know, a wrestling war, essentially, in Montreal, and they just got burnt out. I was talking to Billy about that in... Uh, in terms of our interview as well. And he was saying it was just, they tried, they brought bigger guys and big, and bigger names and all this talent. And, and it just kind of fed on itself until it imploded. And he just, like you said, at least he had kind of a backup plan, not a backup plan per se to get out of Grand Prix, but he had that career and that personality and that established run that he could, you know, jump from there and go wherever else he wanted to go at that point in time. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure he was hugely driven to be a pro wrestler by the 70s there, right? He enjoyed it, um, but yeah, there were, he was destined for bigger things. And I'm not sure we all knew that, or he would have known that in the 60s, but by the time the 70s were there, he was ready to settle down a bit, and he found the, the, the really good gig, right? Being a politician, uh, helping out with his people on, on the Gananoque Reserve. So in terms of that portion of it, and we can move into that now, what do you? Or what was so fascinating to you, or what was the most interesting thing that you were able to uncover um, when you were looking into the career of, of Billy Two Rivers that you may not have realized or may not have thought was possible? 
I remember when I was doing this story, uh, it wasn't, I was still connected with the Toronto Sun. So I was able to go to the Toronto Sun news archives, the library that existed then at the Sun. It's not around anymore. But uh, I was able to go in there and get clipping files and look at some of the photo files of Billy Two Rivers. And so first off, you've got to be fairly notable to have a, a clipping file. It means you've been in the newspaper a number of times. And of course, that leads to the whole Oka crisis from, was that 1989? And just how um, he was such a big part of it, uh, that he was front and center one of these national events where the, the Mohawk of the Gananoque Reserve stood stood and, and stood for what they wanted to against the Canadian government. Uh, and, and he was front and center. So he'd be on TV, he'd be quoted in the newspapers, whatever it was, and he was always well-spoken and, and respected. So I'm going to date myself a little bit here. When, when, the, when the Oka crisis happened, I was five years old in kindergarten, but I remember it being a big topic when I was in school and throughout my entire elementary through junior high through high school, every year when we had, whether it was social studies or Canadian history or whatever the program was, there was always a large portion of the program that was dedicated to the indigenous peoples in Canada and learning about them. And the Oka crisis came up year after year after year after year, every year that I was in school. So I couldn't tell you how many times that I've read about the Oka crisis or written papers on it because it was it was recent history. This was a big watershed moment in Canada. And throughout all these papers and, and all of this knowledge that I had of the Oka crisis, I never did connect Billy Two Rivers and the Oka crisis. I had heard the name. But again, you you don't know the backstory. You just know that he's an elder. Okay, makes sense to me. And and he's well spoken. And he even in his interviews during the Oka crisis and then afterwards. And we're going to be playing some of them later on in the program. He's just he has this sort of magnetism about him. Like he just he draws you in just in the way that he talks and enunciates it and the way he phrases things in certain contexts you just can't help but be drawn to him you would understand why he would be so popular in professional wrestling but to have that kind of aspect of his personality translate essentially seamlessly from wrestling into being an elder chief and a counselor for the mohawk nation is i i don't know i was almost speechless when i put it all together that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that way. So it was 1990. I was double checking my notes, but how did pro wrestling train him for that? It probably did to a degree, right? You, you, you learn these skills talking in front of people. You learn this confidence going to the ring, wearing underwear, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so all these different things add up and help shape who he became. Uh, the trials and tribulations he would have had on the road, no doubt, you know, down in the Carolinas in the 60s, I mean, when he's a person of color. So no doubt there were issues there, too, that uh, helped shape who he was and therefore later what he stood for. And uh, kudos to him. Again, I know we're jumping around a little bit in terms of timelines, but I wonder how much of what he saw out in England and the way that he was treated out there 
and also in Japan and other places, how he was treated there, how that would have maybe shaped is the wrong word to use, but influenced the way that he dealt with his fellow people when he came back here. Like there's, to me, it's very hard to have a, a world view like that and not be bringing a, a lot of those values or experiences back from you to try and shape what you are, what you, him being Billy Two Rivers, are uh, trying to build in terms of your, not necessarily his career, but his community with uh, with the nation. Well, aren't we all that, though? We're all the sum of our experiences. He just had a little bit more colorful experiences than the rest of us, right? He got out there, he performed... He got to deal with fans and promoters and, and travel the roads. Uh, and you're right, they all add up to becoming the man he was. Uh, or man that he, he is, you know, respected and loved. And um, it's funny because I think about my personal experiences with him at the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and at the Titans in Toronto. In both cases, he was asked to, you know, give sort of a blessing to the you know beginning of the banquet. And he had the, you know, the big headdress and, and spoke native tongue and all that kind of stuff. And it was just one of those moments that was really magical and stands out. Um, but then to actually sit and talk with him, he's got like a little twinkle in his eye. Uh, he will give you a little wink. And, um, but he still, he was a big guy then. So it, it, uh, those are fond memories. I, they're just kind of flooding back as we're talking here, Andy. And I don't want to get too much into my conversation with him that everyone's going to hear later on in this program, but I have to say the same thing, right? The more he speaks, the more it really affects you, the listener, because he does go from topic to, and, and not boastfully like you would say, or like you had said, he's matter of fact about it in terms of this is what happened. He's not putting his skew on it. But the way that he presents it is what really got me. And and there were times during the course of our interview where I was just, what do you say? I was speechless because not only is was his story incredible, but the way, like I said, that he framed it, it was just you would think that you're you're reading a, a manuscript for a movie, for example. But this was his life, and and, and again, from somebody who came from you know humble beginnings from a reserve just outside of Montreal to being a, a worldwide sensation, essentially when you, when you boil it all down in a sport where people dance around in their underwear, like you said, to me, that speaks more to what he's accomplished than God. I, I, I don't know. Like, and even now, like I, I get so hard, hard pressed to find the words to properly describe it because it's just, it's one of those things where I'm still in awe. This was only a few days ago and I spent my entire weekend just replaying it over and over and over in my mind. And just, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Just the, the man, his story and the chance that I had to speak with him is just something that will last with me forever. I, I can already say that with all honesty. But that's partly why we choose to do some of these journalistic uh, attempts, right? To talk to somebody, to learn their story. Uh, sometimes our job really is just to sit there and listen and, and guide the conversation a little bit. It can be really magical hearing people share their story. And, but then some of these guys tell their same stories again and again and again, and they start believing their own hype and they start telling stories, you know, their own way. And with Billy, it's just, 
It always seemed very matter of fact. That's you, you. You said that earlier, and I. That's exactly it. He's a very matter of fact kind of guy. I guess that that's the biggest draw for me in terms of doing this program. Like, yes, the the people that we've covered so far have been. They've been interesting, and I've learned a lot along the way. But this was my first kind of real feel from somebody who, you know, essentially retired 15 years before I was born. Right? There's a lot of that life experience that if you don't get it from them, it's lost in, to translation. We can read about it from authors like yourself and many others who do such a great job of of bringing those stories to life. Yes, we can. We can learn about it vicariously through that but there's just something about hearing the story from the person it's themselves that that lived it and experienced it it just it's something that i i didn't think that i would be as affected by it as i was but very clearly i have been i don't know what else to say in in terms of what he meant or now means to me as a person now that i've had the chance and opportunity to, to talk to him i would just that's kind of my hope with this program is that other people are able to take something from this. And like, if they get the idea, maybe I'll read a little bit more about Billy two rivers. And then maybe that spawns them onto someone like Don Eagle. And maybe that spawns them onto somebody else in the history of wrestling that they would have never had the idea or thought or want to learn about previously. If they even get a glimmer of that from this program, then it served its purpose in my opinion. It's not any different than what I do, Andy. It's like, you know, you do a story, it may sit out there in the uh, the ether, and then it may take a while to, uh, to come to fruition, right? A recent example is Pistol Pete Marquez died. He was a wrestler out in Los Angeles. Not a big name. Like, he was an undercard kind of guy, filled out the card, helped train a lot of the guys out there in L.A., but when he died, his family reached out to me because they had read an obituary I'd done years ago about Pete's best friend, who was Buddha Khan. Okay. So they reached out and said, hey, can you share the news that dad died? And of course, I said, sure, let me talk to, you know, I talked to his daughter and his son, and you quickly had a story. And that's that's a different kind of legacy, right? An obituary. And here we're, we're able to talk with somebody like a Billy Two Rivers while they're still around, which is great. So kudos to doing that. And I, uh, I'm glad I got a chance to talk to them way back when. Don Eagle, as you mentioned, he's in my book, The Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame, Heroes and Icons. So there's, and they're both in the Canadians book as well. So there, there's, you never know when something's going to pay off, right? It could be years later. Um, yeah, that's the neat part of this job. So in terms of, and we'll just go with the broader range of Canadian wrestling history, um, what have been some of the names that you've researched over the years that have kind of spawned you on to bigger projects that you may not have thought that were going to be down the pipeline. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. Or maybe the, the what ifs are yes. part of it too, right? It's like, you know, I got to talk to George Gordienko, um, but I didn't interview him and he didn't want to be interviewed. So we just chatted. Those kind of things are what ifs. It's like, I wish there was more on somebody like him out there because he was a fascinating character. Uh, other guys, as I alluded to earlier, like you get a guy like Roddy Piper told his story so many times that he believed it and that his first match was at 16 with Larry Henning in the Winnipeg arena, which wasn't true at all. And you, you get the confidence having done this for so long that I, I, in Iowa, 
at the Hall of Fame there, and I asked them, Roddy, why do you not acknowledge that, you know, you lived in Al Tomko's basement and that Tony Candelo trained you? And he just sort of gave me like a death glare. So, you know, part of our job is to try to make sure the history gets told properly. Uh, and that, so they had the Stone Cold biography on A&E last night, but then they had the WWF Treasures show on A&E where they went and looked at the old <laughs> stuff. And honestly, at one point, Triple H said, WWF is, or WWE is the keepers of history, like wrestling history. And it's like, no, you're not. You are not. You guys are telling your story. It's not the same thing as the whole story. Uh, so that's part of our job as journalists is to get some more of the story out there, not just the one-sided uh, piece of history. Just two things I'll touch on briefly. One, he um, he being Roddy Piper may not acknowledge Tony Candelo because I think Tony beat him in a boxing match one of the one of the first road trips they had, if my memory serves me correctly. And the other thing that you mentioned is in terms of WWE being the gatekeepers of history or however they try and phrase it. Look, the reality is that a lot of the WWE product is sanitized and homogenized and pasteurized to quote somebody. And it's not the actual history. It's not, it's not what's actually happened or it's presented in a context that is so far removed from the actual goings on of the time. And without people like yourself and without people like, a lot of the other authors that I've had in the program, whether it's Bertrand Bear or Pat LaPrade or, or Heath McCoy or whoever, if people aren't actually getting to the real bottom of, of these stories, if, if it's not being exposed and brought to light, and I'm not saying that in a negative connotation necessarily, but if people don't understand the real story behind it, then unfortunately you get the Roddy Piper effect where something's been told again and again and again and, and a little wrinkles added here time and time again and then you wind up with somebody like Bruce Pritchard and we all know what that kind of does to the, the the history of professional wrestling so if nothing else I want to say kudos to you for at least going in depth and bringing these stories to life so that people like me have a chance to actually understand and and get a feel for for the history of professional wrestling Thank you. And, and no historian, no writer does it alone, right? So you mentioned Pat Laprod and Bertrand Hebert and Heath McCoy. And these are all guys I've worked with, known well, um, had beers with in some cases, uh, things like that. Like you don't exist in a bubble. You need these other people doing the research. You need the, the progression, right? Somebody else shows you this and somebody else shows you that. It's, it's the best. That's teamwork at, at, its, at its finest. So I guess as we start to wind down this portion of the program, uh, what kind of projects are you uh, working on? And what, without giving too much away, because <laughs> that's like the the be all end all of those kinds of conversations. But what do you have coming down the pipeline, and what are you looking forward to in the future? Oh, those are always tricky questions. <laughs> um, Not to put you on the spot or nothing like that. Right. Well, the Billy Band book took a lot out of me. Um, it was great, and we're still always promoting that because it's a self published thing. The book with John Arezzi called Matt Memories just came out, and it was fascinating because it wasn't just about wrestling. I also got to learn about baseball. I also got to learn about country music especially and the behind-the-scenes maneuverings there. I always want to learn more. I'm kind of a little bit tired about pro wrestling uh, in some ways, right? I want to learn more about other things. 
So I do have a project on the go that's a lot like Arezzi's book, but I'm not at liberty to talk about it yet because the contract's not signed. <laughs> um, but it's a lot like Arezzi's, a crazy story, uh, multiple lives in different worlds, and uh, really a lot of fun. Uh, and I help other people, right? Lefisto's book, I still hope is going to happen, and I've been helping her work on that. She's trying to take a lot more of the reins of it, which is great. She's got such an amazing story and uh, important part of Canadian wrestling history as well. And you never know when the next project's going to come, right? That's the fact, right? It could be something really neat. It could be a hockey book out of nowhere. Uh, it could be a biography completely different. Um, so you got to just always be ready. Um, even just editing, right? Out of the blue, somebody had read my book, Father Bauer and the Great Experiment, about you know Father Bauer who, who created the idea of the Canadian national hockey team. And this guy really liked the book and said, I really liked your writing. Will you help edit my book? So now oh, I've wow. got his book to, to edit. Like, it's not a huge job, but it's, it's an honor to be asked. And, you know, I get a few bucks out of it, but that's, that's life, right? It's a gig economy, uh, you know, and you're stuck at home. It's a global yeah. pandemic. So what else am I going to do? Whereas, yeah, it's it's really weird to be working on a subject with a subject that I've never met. But that's the circumstances at the moment that I can't go down and visit for a little while. Well, I can say I'm looking forward to your upcoming projects for sure. And uh, if people are looking for how to get in contact with you, uh, give us the uh, personal ways of contact uh, via Twitter or whatever, and then uh, let's hear the uh, website for Slam Wrestling as well. Sure, yeah. Well, slamwrestling.net uh, is our home, and uh, we, when we moved on from Post Media, we were an early casualty of the pandemic. Um, we set up on our own, but we retained the rights to all our content, including, oh, wow. for example, nice. my article on Billy Two Rivers, the Don Eagle story. So a lot of it's up there. We haven't rebuilt the Canadian Hall of Fame, but I hope to get that done this summer. So that's that aspect of my life. Oliverbooks.ca is the best place to find me and all my different books. And all my socials are on there. Uh, links to Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter. So that's Oliverbooks.ca for my 17 books. Uh, it's crazy to say that, but uh, it's true. And in terms of the books, we'll have a few links on tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. Uh, direct Amazon links that you guys can use to purchase those books. And um, I would highly encourage everybody to go out, go to their way and maybe pick something up you wouldn't necessarily think that you'd be interested in. Because I find that like a lot of the times that that's a way to get hooked onto the next thing, right? Maybe you don't think that you're going to be interested in a hockey book, for example. Or maybe, you know, you're looking for a wrestling book. Eh, I'll pick this one up as well. And, and that kind of leads you down the rabbit hole. So that that's something that I would encourage people to do. And, and I love the overlap sometimes that are unexpected, right? You know, the number of times I've talked to these hockey guys and uh, you find out they're big wrestling fans. And I'm sure, so one example would be Hockey Hall of Famer Pierre Pilot, And I helped edit his book. And so, you know, we got to go visit his house. And I can remember my son out in his backyard you know, he was teaching him how to pitch and putt with the golf little golf yep. thing he had set up in the backyard. <laughs> but then Pierre later told me he was a huge wrestling fan growing up. He grew up in um, right on the border between Quebec and Ontario. And so he would have seen guys like Billy Two Rivers and uh, watched them wrestle and watched them grow. And, and I, I just love that, right? You never know where the wrestling fan is. You never, Whereas the hockey fan in Canada, pretty sure you can find those a lot easier. Yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, they're they're a little bit more uh, loud and proud about it, if you will. That's a good way to put it. All right, great. Thank you so much for joining the program today. I'm gonna have to have you on again. I hope uh, I hope we can work something out in the future, not to give away too many plans. <laughs> that's you got to keep teasing them. That's the whole idea. <laughs> that's the idea. Hey, Greg, thanks again for joining the program today. Thank you. Before I move into my interview with Mr. Two Rivers, I'm going to play one more audio clip. Now, this is from the Montreal Gazette in July of 2015, and it goes into a little bit more detail regarding the Oka crisis and Mr. Two Rivers' involvement in it. So, uh, please enjoy this audio clip once again from the Montreal Gazette in July of 2015. And on the other side, I'm very honored to be bringing you my interview with Mr. Two Rivers himself. It was totally unexpected on our part, but the uh, Native community was aware of uh, what was, could possibly happen and they were prepared for it. So when it came down, they quickly informed the community of uh, the crisis that Kansadaga was being attacked. We had support from uh, Nova Scotia to the um, to Rocky Mountains. We had uh, people from Europe, Germany, Switzerland, uh, all over the place supporting us. So we had international support. So it brought uh, the issues to the surface, and uh, we were right. Though we were condemned to be criminals and terrorists and whatnot, we were in our rightful position. There's a, uh, there's a revival in our, uh, our national pride. Uh, maybe we took a, a, um, a lot of the punches and we rolled with it, but it revitalized and uh, made the uh, communities across the country Again, strong and uh, believing in themselves. It, it brought uh, the attention of our plight to a lot of people that didn't know what was happening. I speak of our, of our own people and uh, the oppressive way that governments were uh, uh, driving us toward assimilative policies, which is still going on today. So uh, it was a reawakening and uh, the effects of it is still benefiting us. And uh, we survived the 78 days, and we're looking forward to tomorrow. Hope we don't have to defend again. Yeah, well, I led my life in blocks. Sort of uh, a portion of it. I grew up in a community here till I was 16. Then from 16 to uh, uh, for uh, 19... 1940, 1950, 1953, I wrestled for 20, 24 years, and then uh, I retired briefly and went into uh, city poli- community politics, and uh, then, uh, then from community co- politics, I went to national politics. And then uh, from national politics, well, this is a basic word. I was, uh, you know, uh, oh, 70, I guess, 70, 75, when I I couldn't travel anymore. So so now I'm doing all my politics through the phone and and, (laughs) and whatnot. So, So it's all in blocks, you know. Yeah. I come from uh, like my family is uh, uh, political. Well, they were all political in a community in one sense or other. <laughs> but, uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, I guess uh, a product of the uh, 
the elders that where I grew up around with, the, the stories that they told, uh, the personal stories of, from my parents and my grandparents and people around me. And I, we, we, lived in a, we live in a tight community in Godawaga. I don't know if you've ever been here. But the furthest, for, uh, the most in Quebec that I've traveled has been Quebec City and Montreal. You went right by me. <laughs> Unintentionally, I might add. We're only, uh, we're only uh, what, uh, 15 minutes from Montreal. From the center, we're about 20 minutes uh, on a good day, 20 minutes, 25 minutes from the airport. You know, so uh, we're uh, we're established in a in a, uh, uh, a very good section of the world of the of the world of the world. We we live in uh, we live in uh, a great uh, area that we live in, Ganawaga, which we try to preserve our own use and uh, culture and uh, our uh, territorial integrity but uh, we're, uh, we're like say 10 minutes from uh, Montreal or 10 10 15 minutes with a uh, several million population uh, we're in a bilingual area for them over here which we prefer English so we don't uh, we don't speak that much French and uh, we have uh, the open roads to New York City to Boston to Buffalo to Detroit that was for the iron workers you know so our community was relatively healthy financially and uh, so uh, we're, we're, our people are well traveled and uh, so I grew up in that environment uh, I uh, I grew up along the shores of the St. Lawrence River while we had the river before the seaway and uh, grew up there uh, with the uh, with the, the youth I guess of this of my time we all we all utilized the river for swimming for uh, fishing uh, winter ice skating etc you know and uh, so, so that was that was a normal life of growing up on an Indian community, uh, picking up all the uh, I guess the details of uh, of our history from our elders and our our parents. And uh, so I was not the same, not any different from anybody else. I played hockey in the winter and uh, played lacrosse in the summer. That was our major sports, you know. And uh, so that, that that was it. Uh, the the community life was uh, very uh, countrified uh, in terms of uh, uh, was the way we uh, we used ourselves. Is, uh, we had a large growth of uh, forests that, uh, that the communities all around us had depleted and cut into, cut all the trees off, and uh, they had no uh, no no farmland or what I mean they had farmland but no forest you know and it's important for the forest to live not the not so much so the farmland the farmland is only a minor uh, part of uh, of the uh, forest uh, uh, growth or the territorial growth you know so it uh, is that's to harvest uh, all us 
animals that you and other <laughs> You go up with learning nature and uh, all the other things. We log wood in the fall for our stoves in the winter and uh, we had, uh, you know, I grew up when there was no plows on the street. It was just uh, sort of a uh, sort of a made up uh, plow by uh, wood and drawn by horses, you know. <laughs> it was a great life, you know. It's all gone now. It's not going to come back. And we uh, we had we have golf courses here. We've got three now, but at one time we had only one. You know, we had a golf club that was built here in uh, 1930. Completed, not completed, but uh, relatively usable in 1913. So, and that provided uh, work for for our community. And uh, the... Uh, I guess the irregularity of the of the land as it, it was being dug up and dug here and there to build a uh, uh, a railway track, you know, the bedding for a railway track, the 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 huge acres that was left over made an excellent golf course with all the difficulties that they put into holes, you know. So uh, we had, uh, like I said, when I when I grew up, we had one one two cows and one horse and a uh, number of chickens running around and uh, we raised two pigs a year, you know, so we killed them in the fall. My dad would uh, kill them and uh, the women from the uh, from the family would come over and dress the uh, the, the, the pigs and uh, it, was, it was something to see, you know, it, it's all gone. And uh, so I enjoyed that portion, and then uh, uh, I uh, I went to school and uh, went to school and uh, graduated up to ninth grade in the in the in the uh, like the residential residential school system, but not residential, but home like you know they they went to school, but we were still under the teaching of the priests and the nuns. You know they tried to. Uh, uh, put our language down, you know, and they taught us uh, uh, to sing hymns and whatnot, et cetera. So it was very interesting because it's something to, to learn, to know about, you know. You don't go uh, and have a discussion with somebody and, unless you've experienced it. Oh, yes. yeah, so that was that was quite helpful. Yeah, they, 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 the, the, the teaching we got from the, from the church and the school uh, came in good use when we, we studied our political relationship with uh, with the government and its policies, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so uh, when I reached, uh, I played lacrosse and I was about uh, 14, 13, 14 years old. And at that time, uh, there was a community member who had trained for wrestling. And uh, he was trained by his father. His, his father was uh, John Joseph Bell, which he, he called himself War Eagle. And uh, he had one son, and he was about 10 years older than me. So he was uh, he was a uh, trainer at his father, and he, he was wrestling in New York at the time when, uh, I guess it was Dumont uh, TV in New York and Chicago, etc., and uh, he was a he was a big uh, name, known name, 
Don Eagle. I don't know if you're familiar with him. And he was not only active there, but also in Ohio as well, I believe, correct? See, when I, when he injured his back in Boston, he came back, he had a bad back, and he had to come back to Ganawaga uh, for healing time, you know. And so that's the year he came, he came in, a, in the springtime and uh, recuperated, and in the summer, uh, we were an impoverished bunch of young guys who tried to get to different communities to play lacrosse, and we just, uh, uh, you know, tried to get the truck buddy uh, to lend us somebody to drive us. <laughs> uh, with a, you know, sitting in the back of the truck going to uh, uh, Cornwall or other other communities, uh, uh, the local fr- French communities, we play out uh, lacrosse against them. And anyway, he, uh, him and his dad, he, he had one of those 1940, 19, 1951 Chrysler's fluid drive, seven passenger. Goodness. We the seats folded into the front, <laughs> into the front seat. Yeah, well, he had that, and uh, his father had another big car. So they volunteered. They got interested, and they they volunteered to uh, drive us to these other these places that these venues that we went to were fairly across. And uh, I I was uh, oh uh, approaching six feet and uh, 180 pounds you know, when I when uh, when I was 15, you know. So he uh, he was recovering there and taking us, and I guess he was impressed with the way I played lacrosse for some reason or other. He thought, he thought maybe I could wrestle, <laughs> and uh, he uh, he asked me. He says, "Billy, Billy, uh, would you uh, uh, like to try to uh, uh, wrestling when I go back to wrestling? Uh, I can train with you." Uh, so I asked my parents and. My parents agreed, uh, gave him guardianship, gave Don Eagle guardianship above myself. And uh, we there was three of us that the, he selected in the community, two other guys and myself. And we trained out in a little, his local home where he lived, you know, like along the riverside up on the uh, west end of the community. And uh, eventually the two other guys fell off the Fell off the side of the road, I guess. <laughs> it wasn't their, uh, their thing to do. So anyway, uh, one February, when we were at our local uh, uh, sort of a hot dog and hamburger place with the jukebox, uh, the, uh, he walked in, and uh, so we had a little chat, and he said, look, it's February now, he says, and... Uh, I'll, I'll be going back to uh, Columbus, Ohio. He said to start training. And he said, uh, "Are you still willing to try?" Uh, I said, "Okay." He said, "We'll go tell Mom that we're going to do this now." And so, and so quite quickly, within a matter of two weeks, I was on my way to Columbus, Ohio, and he was ready to go back to training in Columbus, Ohio. So we spent time in the gymnasium and spent time at a, at a uh, Al Haf's uh, motel. The Al Haf was the promoter in uh, Columbus, Ohio at that time. 
and uh, he put us up like you know he was his, his big star was back, so he put him up at the motel with me. So we li- we lived there, and I uh, get up at five in the morning and start running, you know, and then uh, uh, have a nice breakfast and uh, a little bit of rest. Then we went to the gymnasium in in downtown at Columbus. Uh, uh, that was uh, upstairs at a gymnasium. Uh, run by uh, Al Haft and trainers and guys coming back and forth, in and out, you know, working out and whatnot. And uh, we were brought into that environment. There are several of us, like a couple of young young guys, maybe eight of us, seven, eight of us, and uh, from different parts of the world, or I mean the country. And and so uh, we uh, we inter-wrestled with each other, learned the LD. Uh, basic amateur moves and uh, then professional moves, and uh, we uh, we would uh, get advice from uh, people around us who would uh, come in and uh, put their elbows on the mat and uh, give us advice. So, <laughs> yeah, any, anyway, so that that was the sort of the life that uh, I started with in Columbus, Ohio. I made my acquaintances, you know, friends, buddies, and uh, began to meet some of the uh, big-name professional wrestlers at that time, you know, Buddy Rogers and uh, uh, Don Lear Jonathan and uh, uh, fellows from New York City, basically. And uh, I uh, I kept training well. Old Don quickly got back into shape. His back was good, and he we started going his career back. And uh, uh, he uh, he was uh, wrestling at around the uh, the Ohio area, and uh, so then he'd come in like in the morning, and uh, then he'd go do his match, and then back again. And so he was he was getting he was toughening up, and uh, I was getting beat up. <laughs> Over in the gym. They always ask me, who's the best wrestler you met? And I said, Donnie, who my teacher. <laughs> he, he beat up. He had his own punching bag, you know. And uh, so it, it was pretty tough uh, on me. You know, you get your aches and pains, and then uh, uh, you always have somebody telling. That's one of the best advice I ever got, anyway, for from an old timer who had his cauliflower ears there and uh, his uh, knobby shoulders and uh, knobby knees and putting his elbow on the mat and he says uh, after a while, hey boys, he says, come here. He says, you're starting out? He says, I'm an old man. He says, I'm an old man in, uh, in, as far as wrestling goes, he might have been in 40s or just 40. And he said, listen, he says, you're going to start wrestling. He says, and if you get good and you earn money, he says, put half away and spend the rest. <laughs> I found that that was a good advice. It wasn't always half, but, but always something went, went uh, I put aside, you know, for, for a rainy day. So I, so I thought that was a good advice that served me right up, right up to today, you know. And, and so, uh, I uh, I begin now, Don, that uh, wanted me now to start sort of uh, traveling with him, helping him drive, you know, and uh, just company in the trips that he made, 
we went all around uh, Columbus. We went into uh, uh, Chicago. We went into uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, we went into the, uh, the lower uh, uh, Ohio River, you know, and uh, Charles, Charles, Wheeling, West Virginia, and a couple of other places wrestling in there. And uh, so I began to uh, get a feel of uh, what it was like, the traveling and uh, the, uh, the arenas and, and whatnot. And then uh, one day he said, well, he says, you know, it's time you got your nose in the ring. I said, what? <laughs> I said, it's time you went in. And uh, so I... Uh, I got up all nervous and uh, a, a naughty stomach, and uh, he said, "We're going to uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Michigan, Detroit. Yes. We're, the, we're going to Detroit." He says, "And uh, I got you a match there." He said, "I'm on, I'm on the card with, with me." He says, "So we'll go up there," and uh, he says, "That will be your first wrestling bout." Pressure, hey! Uh, oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> no, no fingernails left. You know? <laughs> uh, so I went to uh, I went to uh, uh, Detroit with him. And, uh, was saw a poster that I was the opening bout. You know, fifteen minutes, one fall, and uh, and then well, there was a. Uh, I think three other boats on a card, and so, and Don was the headliner. It was it was at an arena, uh, more like an arena gymnasium, where there was a big uh, area on the bottom, and then at, uh, on the top. I don't know if I've ever seen them like a uh, a track. Yeah. Track around the around the receding, you know, a, a running track on there. So we do. And then, so what happened is the place, Detroit, was occupied by uh, occupied by a lot of our boys working over there, you know, and guys who were two, three, four years older than me were working on steel over there. Yes. Uh, relatives of mine there were there. So anyway, so uh, they got wind of uh, this wrestling match that I was going to be on, and so I guess they were excited and they wanted to go and watch it. And <laughs> So here I go. We had been practicing. Don and I had always been practicing to do come to the ropes and then spring over the top rope because usually we had feathers on. It was a bit awkward crawling between the ropes. Get your, get your gear caught. So we jumped over them, you know. So here's, here we go for my first bout. I come walking down the aisle. Uh, so sort of, uh, no place to hide. <laughs> and... Uh, I went to got got to the uh, the uh, apron of the mat and uh, took a deep breath and uh, went to clear the ropes and everything got over except my toe. <laughs> I landed in a pile on the, in the middle of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> Looked like a, a some kind of chicken or something. You know? <laughs> That's all the guys needed upstairs. They, oh, they goodness. speak the language, you know, and, I, and I, you didn't believe the things they were saying about me, you know. <laughs> so a lot of the, 
the way it was, but must must have been hilarious. So, but but anyway, I got over that. I was able to jump over the ropes after that. But it was it was that time, and uh, I think I wrestled to a draw or I lost. I don't know. I uh, I'll, I'll say I wrestled to a draw, but I think I lost. And uh, so that's, that's that was the start of my career. We started it, traveling together, and uh, then eventually, after I did a lot of singles, they called me up to a tag team partner with him. So it was like the two the two native people, the two Mohawks, and uh, we we traveled. Uh, basically, our, our our home base was. Uh, Columbus. Uh, then we moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina, and Florida, and uh, up to Montreal for the summer. Well, not for the summer, but we just for a swing by, for give us time to come home. But our our main nightmare homestay, we uh, we found a home in uh, in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Jim uh, Jim Crockett was the promoter at that time. And uh, we we traveled together, and then uh, finally uh, I had a had a five-year contract with them because of the the training I received from Don and his father, and then after that I uh, more or less refused to sign the thing again because I thought I you know that I was earning my own way and. Uh, I, 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 I repaid them enough. Anyway, uh, so then I, we went into uh, tight matches as uh, as individuals, and uh, finally, uh, for some reason, uh, we uh, we so we separated there in uh, in uh, Columbus, Ohio. I uh, know in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, I got the opportunity to. Uh, uh, well, I had friends there in uh, in Columbus, and one of them was uh, a fellow from England, uh, and uh, he was he was wrestling in in Charlotte, and then there was a couple of guys that I grew up with in Columbus, Ohio, Red Bastien and there's Ray Stevens, uh, and uh, well, Ray Stevens in particular, Red trained somewhere else, but anyway. Uh, they were going to Calgary at the uh, I don't know, Stampede Wrestling. Uh, this was in 1958, I guess. 1958, yeah. Oh, before that, before that, we were, were we were in uh, Don and I were in Florida, wrestling in Florida, and we got the opportunity to go to wrestle in. Cuba it was. It was uh, Castro's uh, pre- previous guy there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's Cuba. Well, yeah, they had the big casinos and the, uh, the, the mafia was sitting there, sitting there. You know, the, 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 all the mafia names at the, the, the big uh, gambling in, uh, in there in uh in Cuba, and uh, so we uh, we got uh, we got over there, and we had we were booked for one match, and then we heard the rumors that uh, there was this guy in the hills coming down on into uh, into Havana, uh, Fidel Castro. <laughs> it's coming close now, 
And so this was uh, September, I guess, uh, October. And so uh, Don did uh, one boat in there, and then uh, he asked me to stay because he was having another one, and uh, why make me go back and forth? So I enjoyed a nice couple of days, well, weeks in uh, in Havana. All the meantime, the uh, the net was closing around uh, around Cuba, and. Uh, Guys were riding around in jeeps with guns and uh, uniform, and then the, everybody was scrambling to get out of there, and I got out of there too. So uh, <laughs> one trip, but the other trip uh, came later too, where I was at another uh, uh, government uh, upheaval. That was in Greece, in Greece. Uh, uh, where they overthrew the they overthrew the government and then we had to scramble out of there. So they over so I've been in two revolutions and then uh, uh, so then I got a like I said I was in uh, I was in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, my two buddies were going to uh, uh, into uh, uh, what's his I don't remember the guy's name. He's a fam- famous uh, promoter there in uh, in uh, Alberta. Is it Alberta? Yeah, Alberta. Yeah. Uh, hard for Stampede Wrestling. Hard, yeah, hard. That's that's the one, yeah. And anyway, and then this uh, this this uh, other fella from England says I've been talking to the English promotions. And uh, they'd be interested if they if you'd uh, like to go to England. So uh, I sort of uh, tossed the idea back and forth of where I was going to go, and I just couldn't decide because they're very good friends. I'd never been out west, and I'd never been to England. So I flipped a coin, and England won. My goodness! Imagine flipping a coin. <laughs> so that's that's what happened. So. That was it. And I told my buddies, I told the Red Bastine, I said, look, uh, when I finished in England, I said, I'll, I'll go right over and give you a phone call and I'll, I'll go join you. They said, oh, OK. So that was our, our friendly party. And uh, I uh, made made arrangements with to go to England. And uh, I went over there in uh, September, September, September 59, I guess. Yeah. September 59, I went over there and uh, I wrestled for joint promotions And uh, at that time. So uh, television had just begun in July and uh, the ITV over there. So they said I came in at the right time because uh, right away I went on TV and uh, was uh, very, very well accepted. And uh, so... Instead of uh, doing a uh, uh, 40 boat in one year and 40 boat in the other, usually people would leave in September, do their 40 boats because they were not, that's all they were allowed by uh, English wrestling law or some darn thing. You come in for 40 and then you go, you go, the, 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 the new year you do 40, so they, you get there for 80 matches. Well, uh, we had a little discussion on the, 
how they came to my country and I didn't order them around or anything like that. So uh, they looked into it and uh, no, I didn't. I didn't have to uh, leave after 40 boats. Like you know, I said I was a, a, a subject of the crown. Oh yes, the the workaround. Uh, yeah, so I stayed there for uh, six years. Uh, but not six years in England, but most of the time in England, Scotland, Wales, and uh, Ireland. But uh, I traveled to France, and I traveled to uh, uh, Amsterdam. I traveled uh, down down to uh, uh, North Africa, and uh, mostly mostly in England too. But I, like I said, I made short tours to these other areas and uh i uh, i enjoyed it uh, to to me growing up reading books over the castles and kings and having imagination that a king was about eight foot tall you know <laughs> big people and uh father from the uh, from the uh the, the the great white father and all all that and, and then there the castles and uh, the knights in armor and all that, you know, you're you're you're, you're sort of a uh, uh, odd boy. Uh, all that uh, all that stuff that you read about that you can actually see it, you know, London and Trafalgar Square, and, uh, Windsor Castle, and uh, all the, the the prison there where they they kept. Uh, People uh, in Scotland, a beautiful country. I went up as far as uh, uh, Aberdeen, and uh, I think one more place where the, where they make the salt. Oh, Argyle! You know, you know they, they, the little diamond socks that used to have. Well, you're too young. Right. No, no. They, now they're back in fashion again. And so I went there in Aberdeen, and uh, down Dundee, and. Uh, uh, the, the the big port out in the west. Uh, oh, I don't know. Out when I went all over Scotland, uh, all over England. As a matter of fact, one guy said, "Yeah, he says you travel more in England than anybody else, because of what they have. They have sort of been particular to the up to growing in their areas. So their shires and their little." Uh, Places that they stay, they don't travel uh, much. Uh, to travel from uh, Manchester to Blackburn, uh, the, the the beach, the uh, it, it, it's, it's a big trip. They get the car polished and uh, the car washed and everything done, and they go, and it's about 35 miles. You know, it's a big production. But anyway, uh, the uh, the traveling I did. Uh, was uh, was uh, was a great experience. I went to Northern Ireland, and uh, like I say, uh, uh, went to Wales. Uh, all uh, all the uh, the wild country, if you want to call it, of Wales, you know, and then along the coastline, uh, uh, it was everything was interesting to me. And it, it, I've been there. I went there six years, and I haven't seen everything. <laughs> so vast, you know. One that is so vast, it's all. Uh, I think it's made up of uh, fifty little squares, you know. 
and uh, Westminster is where the uh, the central government is. But all the rest, all around there, they're all uh, they're all London, and uh, it takes you an hour or something to drive from anywhere to get into into London. Traffic's always congested and slow and whatnot. So that was that was it. I, I spent time there, then I, I uh, came back home and. Uh, Went back to uh, North Carolina, back and forth, and uh, then uh, I had uh, got into politics and this, was doing that. Uh, I was elected on the council, and uh, the first thing we got elected and had our meeting, they, the chief pointed finger at me. He says, "And you?" He says, "You travel." He says, "Because you know how to travel. You know how to go on a bus. You know how to go on a plane, and you know how to." Go to hotels and uh, so uh, uh, we're going to send you. You're going to be a <laughs> man, you know. Yes. Uh, so uh, well, I took to it. I was doing that all my life practically. Oh. And uh, then so I went back home, and uh, after a while, I was uh, around there, and um, I went to Ottawa after that. After. Uh, uh, Several years in, in council at home. I had 20 years in council at home. Then I went to uh, work for the national office as an elder advisor. And uh, I, uh, in the meantime, I had kept up training before that while I was uh, while I was home. I kept up training, and then all of a sudden, somebody knocks on my door, and it's uh, uh, Paul Vachon. Wow. Oh. I said, come to he says, uh, hey, Billy, what you doing? I said, oh, nothing much. I said, uh, just traveling here and around. Uh, would you, you know, uh, I I had a couple of friends that were retired wrestlers, too, and there was a, a community bar outside of Ottawa called the Plaza Hotel, and a guy was a former boxer, and they put up a ring there to attract boxers and wrestlers, and we trained there, so it was a was a nice life, and so Paul comes in, and I was in shape that time, really. I weighed uh, 200, 232 pounds. I, I, in the gym, I tried to get lower. I tried to get to under two, 230. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that beer after the workout. <laughs> anyway, so I, so I got a call. So I got a call uh, from Paul. He came in and he, he sat down and he said, we're starting out as organizations as the Grand Prix. Yes. The Grand Prix. So there was him and uh, Morris and uh, Morris, his brother. And Joe's, uh, I believe, right? Yvonne Robert Jr. and uh, Edward Carpentier. They were the four guys that got together and they started their promotion against uh, uh, promotion Johnny Rougeau. Johnny Rougeau's running approaches, so they they ran they ran competition against him, and they went they 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 wanted to know if I would wrestle for them. And uh, Paul was uh, like a little a little quiet and a little shy. He says I. He says, I know you had trouble with my brother, but that's all over with and uh, whatnot. 
because uh, in 1955, uh, Don and I, Don got booked in uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, so uh, just after just after Christmas, we left and we drove from uh, from home to uh, to Austin, Texas. And uh, as soon as we got there, uh, which was never my involvement, was speaking with the management and and uh, pay payoffs and. Uh, uh, Don's father was going to the ring and taking his stuff, and he was getting preliminary pay, you know, and uh, and so there was uh, some back and forth on that because the promotion didn't didn't feel like they had to pay the chief, you know. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, we don't we don't have to pay him. We're very you, uh, but all the others accepted it where we traveled. But then, and Houston said, no, 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 no. Uh, and I guess Don said, no, 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 either. So it was a big no-no on both sides. So we got there and we had our first boat and we, we stayed there. Uh, I mean, we had our first boat and my first boat was with a, a policeman, uh, in what they call a policeman, a guy that takes care of the, uh, of any, anybody that, uh, causes trouble or doesn't toe the line. And more, Maurice Vachon was the policeman. He was an in, he was an international champion in Canada, I think, in 1948, uh, the Olympics. Or no, the, the British, uh, the British wrestling games. So he won that. So he was the policeman in Texas, and he, he was he was uh, uh, partnered with a guy from Boston, uh, ex-cop. Uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but they they were a team. And so they booked me with uh, with Morris, and uh, I didn't know what was going on. I don't know what the heck uh, office is this and that. I just got my bookings from Don, and uh, I I got paid, and that was it. So uh, apparently uh, they had a disagreement, and that we were supposed to leave after the week's bookings. Uh, our last bookings would be there, and we were going to leave. When they didn't get along, and so they uh, almost apparently they the office uh, uh, gave orders to uh, Morris to take the revenge out on me. So I I didn't know what was going on, and I, I was only what uh, 20, 20 years old or twenty one somewhere there. Anyway, so they they gave him orders to 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 get back at them through me, you know, and so uh, I started wrestling, all of a sudden the, the, the old man, uh, War Eagle comes and he says an Indian, he says, uh, come come back at that guy, he says he's trying to hurt you, uh, so, because uh, I, I, I found it odd too, you know, he was a pro, old professional wrestler, Morris, and he was, he was what they call trying to stretch me, you know. And uh, so when I when I got the uh, the go ahead to say you want to you know take care of things for yourself, I'd never done this before, but uh, I, uh, I I wasn't always that good a wrestler. But as a street fighter at home in Guatemala, if you didn't fight every day, something was wrong. <laughs> 
basically fighting over girls or all, all the things that we're growing. You know, street fighting is not the same as the uh, regulated uh, form of wrestling, you know. So I, I just uh, stood back, took a good aim, and got a hold of him. And he got a hold of me, and I set one on his jaw that knocked him out, right out. So then when he knocked, when I... He knocked, I knocked him out, and he was uh, just like a, a strike, and I was slamming him all over the place, and he'd go out on the floor all staggered, and uh, I'd throw him back into the ring, and I, 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 I beat him so bad, you know. <laughs> there, I was their champion. Uh, there was their policeman, you know. I, I stole his badge from him. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so that, uh, so when this uh, invitation from Paul came uh, came about, uh, it came about cautiously, and so, sure. uh, how's uh, Morris? And he said, "Well, this is, uh, Morris uh, wants you to come and uh, wrestle for us." So that was it. I uh, I went over there and uh, I started wrestling with different uh, different partners, and finally they found a a guy who was from uh, Montreal, and uh, he uh, he became my partner. They, you know, promoters make and create Indians more than uh, the uh, the government of Canada does. <laughs> yeah, they do. They got the Indian Act, and they got the Prof- <laughs> the Promoters Act. You know, <laughs> so they got me uh, a, a partner, Johnny War Eagle, is what he called himself. He's a nice French boy, and uh, I, I got along with him. Uh, had no trouble. He, he was glad to be with me, and he come at the house on the reserve and pick me up for, for trips. I didn't drive. Uh, why not? You know, he, he and so so we became good friends, and uh, I started wrestling. Uh, and then when we had the tag team, and uh, uh, I'd say without. Uh, you know, uh, any uh, uh, over, over, overly patting myself on the back that we had the best, you know, the, the best uh, combination of uh, of uh, tag team partners with the right partners on the other side. <laughs> the blonde brothers, you know, the blonde, uh, they had those guys from uh, from blonde and. Uh, they had their French name, I don't know, Lavia, something in beauty or something. Anyway, so I uh, I wrestled for them till they they ran they ran out of uh, uh, all the business. They they do what they they do to everything. Uh, they imploded, you know. They exploded inwardly, uh, just uh, overspending and uh, mismanagement and. Uh, for them all in pulling in different directions and the and then the Grand Prix collapsed, you know. They went out of business. But they had they had big promotions. They had the, uh, Andre the Giant was the first one because it was French and Quebec was a French province and it we was his first stop into Montreal. And uh, he was there. He, he he created a sensation everywhere it went. But we were the first ones to uh, to have him over in uh, in uh, Canada and the United States, and uh, I guess uh, like uh, I'm uh, 
curious about different things. He was curious about Indian people, so he pretty well stuck to me. He didn't speak uh, good English, so I was his English teacher. <laughs> uh, I had a Ford, uh, two-door Ford, so the front the passenger seat, the uh, the area was a lot of space, so he could sit in there, and his, his knees weren't in his chin. You know? <laughs> So he made it. He, he sort of made it a uh, sort of a requirement that uh, we travel by car. He travels with me, you know. So, so we, we that was a great adventure with uh, Joe Ferrer, uh Andre the Giant, the same fellow, and uh, everything went well until these guys got greedy, you know. And it was too bad because they had a good uh, good thing going. Uh, was, uh, they they sold out the forum all the time. They had outdoor arenas at the baseball field. Uh, you know, thirty thirty thousand people in, in the, the old baseball field, and uh, it, it was it was a good thing. They were going to the major cities, Quebec, you know, and uh, Ottawa, and. Uh, some of the out out in the uh, the uh, New Brunswick area uh, yes. promotion we wrestled over there. So uh, after that, uh, I uh, I definitely like to say retiring got into politics, and then from politics I'm I'm here, and uh, my knees started to go bad gradually, and so I had difficulty walking. Till finally, they just came out under me. I gave an arthritic and whatnot, and I couldn't walk, so I was in a wheelchair. And then uh, it was very difficult for my wife to take care of me. She couldn't do it. And I said she couldn't. I didn't want her to do that. So I moved, I moved, I'm living here in a home care, in a home care in, in, on, on the community, Catherine Memorial Hospital. And uh, it's not a hospital, it's a clinic, what they call it, a hospital. Uh, yeah, they're happy with that, I guess, working at a hospital. But anyway, that was, that, was, uh, that was basically it. I'm here now. I've been here for five years in, in, the, in the hospital. I've uh, accumulated acclimatizer. I got used to living here. In the summertime, when the weather is nice, I take my chair and I... I take a ride home. I have a little. They gave me a chair with a little motor on the side. Out yeah. there, and then one of my grandsons or granddaughters come, and they walk with me, and I go back to the house, spend a couple hours there, then come back home. I mean, I call hospital alone. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I get, I get good care here. It could be better, but it's not bad. So that's uh, that's basically where where I am, where I was at. And, uh, I don't know if you have any questions, but that's uh, that's a run through of uh, what I, I went out of my my life. Your foray into politics that was not originally your idea, was it? Yeah, I was in politics. Uh, I was involved with the uh, repatriation. You know, when they had the constitutional repatriation, well, uh, we had uh, the uh, working with the Mohawks and uh, the uh, 
uh, Ojibwe and uh, a Western uh, uh, Western tribe there living on the on the island, Kosalish. Uh, they, they, so we worked together as as a group, and, uh, and we we all worked for the better interest of ourselves into Section 35 and developing that, uh, developing that to the best of our ability. Uh, I, I uh, one of the highlights was when we, for me anyway, for a laugh. Uh, we uh, were in uh, the old train station in Ottawa, where the meetings were held, you know, across the street from uh, the, the hotel. You know, it, are you familiar with Ottawa? And the, there used to be a train station there. I think I know what you're talking about. I think that that's... Uh... There was a big area there that accumulated a large number of people, and they, they, had, the, they had the meetings there. So each uh, sort of uh, uh, nation, uh, uh, tribal people were were there uh, from uh, from Canada uh, and uh, looking at and, and trying to deal with the uh, repatriation by Trudeau, you know, for the minister, Prime Minister Trudeau, and uh, we'd go in every day. Uh, we started with an opening prayer and uh, did the smudging. And uh, so he sort of uh, said, look, are we going to have to go through this every day? It doesn't one smudging, one uh, opening prayer uh, last for the entirety of the meeting. And so it was explained to him, no, we do that every day. Whether we're here or somewhere else, we do an opening or we do an in gatherings. We do an, an opening prayer. And uh, this is and this is our 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 culture, and so he sort of mumbled under his breath, you know. And, and, and he's Catholic, you know. He's he's, he's a Catholic person. And anyway, so uh, he had a very sharp tongue, very very sharp. So uh, and uh, he he would sort of go in and uh, and uh, be very very uh, pointed and. And talk to these people like belittling everybody on what uh, what was going on. He had an answer for everything. Right in the meantime, uh, over here in Quebec, we were deciding to go, uh, getting the chiefs together, and sending us as a delegation. Like uh, I think it was uh, one, two, three, three Mohawks and a couple other advisors that uh, were in there, and uh, we were we were going and. Uh, Quebec was protesting that they were not going to this meeting. You know, Levesque, Rainy Levesque at that time said, oh, we're not going, or Quebec is not going to take part in this. They don't believe in the patriation or all or any other thing. Anyway, we uh, we started, decided to go, and all of a sudden in the, in the press, the news breaks that uh, Rainy Lake is going to attend the meeting to ensure that uh, the native people in his, his community are taken care of and not uh, misled. This is what he's saying. <laughs> you know? So anyway, uh, in, in the meantime, now, uh, the uh, Six Nations Iroquois Confederacy, which we belong to, 
you know, I don't know if you're aware of the Six Nations. Yeah. Hey, well, uh, they, uh, uh, the Longhouse, actually, is what, uh, what I'll call them. And uh, they, uh, they wanted to get their uh, position uh, put, on, put on the... Uh, uh, as, as the uh, as one of the uh, uh, the uh, positions that were being given by different provinces and different things, so they came and they they wanted to put this proposal on the uh, officially on the table, and so they I was sitting uh, in there, and uh, and uh, what's his name uh, uh, the. Uh, Wait, let me see. Uh, the uh, Longhouse asked me if I would speak on their behalf because it was not a Longhouse meeting and they wouldn't participate in it anyway, you know. Yeah. They wouldn't They wouldn't participate. And so they asked me if I'd read their position to, uh, to uh, Canada and Trudeau, you know. So uh, this, uh, so the uh, day came, and so I, uh, I was sitting next to uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Trudeau, and then myself, and then Rainy Levesque was sitting on the other side. Uh, that's Quebec delegation, I think, about three delegations away, and then so we started the meeting, and then. Uh, uh, I, it was my turn to read this uh, position of the uh, Longhouse people, and so I began reading it. And uh, so uh, all of a sudden, I got an interruption from uh, Trudeau, and Trudeau says, uh, "Oh, Chief Two Rivers," he says. By the way, he says, uh, uh, "This presentation you make is it is it for Quebec?" So I <laughs> chuckled immediately, and I said. Pierre Elliott, yeah. Yeah, Pierre Elliott. No, I said, you know, says I said, Pierre Elliott, I said, uh, you of all people should know that Quebec doesn't see, need anybody to speak on, speak on its own behalf. <laughs> they can make their own presentation <laughs> from the crowd. And, <laughs> because it'd been, it'd been knifing everybody in uh, so them were maybe belittling everybody, and I gave him this response, and then and then Levesque was jumping up and down. I think he smoked <laughs> a cigarette that day. <laughs> oh goodness! I can't even imagine. You know, so so that was, that was a, I had a good several years in uh, in that I traveled around with the uh, national uh, chief. As, uh, as an advisor and a historian, you know, because basically we have uh, the first contact with uh, with Europeans through any 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 level. We uh, uh, we always had a uh, a distant relationship and uh, uh, not a not a not a respect for. They never had respect for us, but uh, we forced them to <laughs> to acknowledge us anyway. And then so uh, with that, like I, I, I enjoyed it. I traveled across the country and uh, I went to various meetings and uh, uh, 
had the, the meeting over here with the Quebec chiefs. They attended that on a regular basis. And uh, so it's it's uh, it's been uh, it's been it's been a good uh, good memories for me. Uh, the my most recent one is that uh, I just uh, uh, helped in a film for uh, APTN. There was a, a, a native group came over here and says, Billy says, we're trying to do a story from the native people's viewpoint. They said that you get stories of the white man and. And it's the word history is his story, you know, not ours. Yes. And uh, they wanted to know about the fur trade and what I knew about it. Well, I'd been hearing about the trade, fur trade all my life. I mean, any time there was a gathering of uh, putting posts and uh, a fence post in or, or killing a pig or doing anything, the elders were there. And they sat all around on the log, smoked their pipe and told stories. And some of them uh, dealt with uh, with the uh, fur trade, you know, how um, the uh, our boys went from here, across, rode across the river to Lachine, where the main office was in for the fur trade, and they would go around and start collecting the pelts around here. And as the uh, beaver pelt got depleted in the area, they moved further and further west. And uh, they, they went from here and they would go uh, up the Ottawa River and uh, out west and they knew where to travel. They paddled, uh, paddled their way. As, as the pelts got scarcer, they went further till eventually they reached, uh, they reached Alberta and a uh, place uh, that is now Edmonton, you know. There's a reserve that I was taken over, but it, it was, uh, so our, 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 our men left from here. As the journey got longer, it took longer. It took one season to go there, spend the winter and come back. You know, and, uh, the company here entrusted our, our people to purchase, uh, pelts and in exchange give them, uh, whatever they needed, pots and pans or whatever commodities that they could use that they didn't have. And so there was a good relationship from native people to native people. And uh, I've, I've heard stories of the uh, uh, European people putting a rifle there. And when the beaver pelts uh, hit the top of the rifle, then they exchanged it. That's what they, they were given, <laughs> rifle and powder. So the, any, anyway, um, uh, they uh, they ended up in Edmonton and uh, and it was in Edmonton then I forget the name of the reserve but anyway uh, at that time uh, the uh, the stay over there they found it better to open a uh, a, uh, a station there a trading post uh, in uh, in this uh, in this reserve. And it was uh, uh, manned by uh, uh, one of the major men, uh, was a fellow called Gordillo and uh, Araquande and several other names of the fellows that stayed there. Young men, you know, only 22, 21. You had to be healthy to travel that far. Oh, yeah, so they, they set up this trading post to accept the furs from all around that area. So the, what happened was that the... Uh, uh, they 
were doing well, and uh, the uh, different tribes would come and gather their beaver. And uh, knowing that uh, the, these boys from here would be arriving, they trade for whatever they had, and they they already uh, traded some furs in around Winnipeg and uh, Saskatchewan, and uh, they left that. And when they came home, they gathered these pelts that they already bought, and they had already given their their uh, gifts of trading material to the people there. And it was a good working relationship, and it was a good thing that was running good. And so in the meantime, now the French didn't like losing this market. And so uh, what they uh, what they proposed to do over here in Montreal, the governor uh, has got to help with the economy. So the governor called this big meeting of 1701. 1701 was a big meeting of, of the of the chiefs and and uh, and the uh, the French government well the French government over here and uh, and so they they wanted to control like everything else they wanted to get a hold of everything and control it and uh, with with uh, that uh, that problem that they wanted to solve they called the meeting and they, uh, there was only two pe two people to the meeting. It was ourselves, our people who were traveling, then doing the fur trade, and it was them. The rest were all the observers that were coming to see who. Oh, yeah. Want to find out who who they're going to trade with? So they talked back and forth, and what the French were proposing was to be allowed to build a station similar to. Uh, Edmonton in Detroit, you know, Detroit, the, the strait, it means the strait in French. And uh, so Detroit, and they wanted to build another one in Kingston to get uh, uh, pelts coming from, from the lower part instead of the upper part of uh, Canada. And uh, so uh, with, uh, with the discussion that we had, our people said no, you know, for so they, they in order to compromise, there was no uh, trading post in Detroit, but there was one in Kingston. But our uh, trading post in uh, Edmonton remained. And then that's, uh, that was a 1701 meeting where uh, it's a sort of told that the, that the French were telling us what to do. You know, but no, they were coming and trying to get a get a deal and control it by uh, establishing a similar system as ours for for the uh, receiving of pelts. For benefit. So I just finished a uh, a documentary on that. These people came in and uh, filmed over here in a hospital room. I sat up and uh, in my wheelchair and. Uh, Told the story to them. They filmed it. Uh, like uh, every couple, every couple of days, it took us. And uh, they went back and they uh, uh, sort of uh, got all the uh, things together, developed it, and edited it, and I guess what not. And they uh, they set it up with uh, APTN, and APTN ag agreed to take the uh, the film. 
And well, that I guess that's their matter, how they settle that. But anyway, uh, the, uh, the film is going to be coming out probably with, uh, depending on a pandemic, sometime sure. July. And the thing I asked is if you're going to have it, can you have a showing here in a community before? Community, you know, instead of before it goes on APTN as a as a history thing or whatever. So they agreed to that. They're working on it and they're looking for a, a, a relationship with us. So one of the one of the buildings that will accommodate a place where they can show the movie to the community. You know, well, not not all the community, but it'll be available maybe two nights. You know. Give give everyone a chance. Yeah. yeah, so I'm all excited about seeing uh, how it turned out, the story, and uh, apparently they were quite happy uh, with it. These people that came, and then the the uh, APTN was accepted it as uh, part of history, you know. So that's uh, basically uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, and then this guy Andy calls me up <laughs> for an interview. You know, <laughs> hey, I, I enjoyed this, Andy. Uh, it, it was just uh, a nice recollection recollection for myself. I don't always go back, uh, sort of. Uh, I don't like to look back out of my shoulder uh, when I was leaving home when I was younger. Anyway, just kiss my mother goodbye and turn around and walk out, you know. Turn my back and walk away. And uh, when you walk away, you learn to walk away from a lot of things. So uh, I uh, I have to go back and dig back in my memory of how things were and, uh, you know, how, how different events happened. And uh, it. it was a review down memory lane. Say I do, I'll turn my back to you now and hang up the phone. <laughs> okay, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Rona. Very much. As we head into the finish of tonight's program, I just want to play one more audio clip. Now, this one is just a, a funny clip that I found of Mr. Two Rivers telling a, a winemaking story from the Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001. Now, clearly, you just heard the interview with Mr. Two Rivers, so you get a pretty good glimpse of his humor and his zest for life. So I found this clip. I just think it's it's... It's him in a nutshell, and I just think it's so funny. So I'm going to play this clip. If you have young children, there's no language to be worried about in this program, but you may have some explaining to do at the end of it. So I'm going to play this clip. I hope you all uh, see the humor that he has, uh, see the zest for life that he has in this program. And uh, and as well, we're going to get to uh, get to wrapping this one up at the end of it all. So uh, please enjoy this once again. Uh, Mr. Two Rivers from the Cauliflower Alley Club in 2001. Tell us the story about your wine. Yeah, okay. Uh, rather quickly, this is the wine I make from wild grapes that grow on the reserve. Right. So I've made wine and I learned it from my uncle. And um, I've given it to several people over the years and they asked me, what's the name of the wine? And I said, it's called Panty Remover. 
you know. So, so that became the name of this type of wine that I make, panty remover. Now what happens is we never, we never believe that our children are listening to what we say. So, well, at that time I had a three, I had a three-year-old daughter that happened to pick up this uh, name I'd given my wine. Around New Year's, it's tradition for people to come and visit. Well, people came to visit me and I was serving the wine. A nun who had now gone into normal clothing, her name was Sister Kay, came in with my sister-in-law. So I asked her, I said, will you have a highball? She said, no, thank you. Would you like a beer? The nun said, no, thank you. I said, you want to drink a wine? She said, no, thank you. I said, it should be all right. The priest drink it. Oh, she says, all right, I'll have a drink of wine. So I went back into the kitchen, prepared the other drinks, and in came this wine. As I was about to present it, my mother was there, and my, my wife was there, and everyone was there having these holiday drinks. I was just about to serve Sister Kay the glass of wine. Out beside me comes running into the kitchen, Sister Kay, Sister Kay, don't drink that, don't drink that. She said it's panty remover. <laughs> uh, my mother, my wife, Oh, turned red, green, yellow, and, and it was hilarious. Yeah, oh, it's, it's so, yeah, Sister K, Sister K. They hear, the children hear. As we wrap up the program tonight, just once again, really am honored beyond words and truly blessed to have had Mr. Two Rivers on the program, and I want to send a special thank you out to him. Uh, thank you very much, sir, for your time and patience and candor talking to me in regards to this program and i really hope that everybody got out of it what i did or at least a portion of it i mean you're hearing it straight from the horse's mouth if you will so i really hope that uh, you all enjoyed uh, what he had to say on the program as much as i did also want to thank again greg oliver for joining the program Uh, i will be having him on at a later date not to give too much away but i'm very looking forward to what we uh will be giving you guys in the future in terms of uh, content and programming for grappling with canada now i did mention at the start of the program that i'm going to start reading out uh, five star reviews because legitimately if you guys are taking the time to leave me a review i'm going to damn sure take the time to uh to give you guys the the respect and uh, my admiration for you guys leaving those reviews. So uh, we had a couple of five star reviews that were left uh, regarding this program. Uh, EPW show uh, left a five star review saying pro wrestling is one of my favorite podcasts. I always love listening to anyone talking the graps. Great podcast. Thank you very much. EPW show. We also had one left by Canadian spirit, another five star review. He says, I'm going to start this off by saying I have about as much interest in sports as I do the, the geological formations of the rocks in my driveway. And yet, Andy somehow inexplicably held my undivided attention for three straight hours, telling the very human stories of Canada's most impressive athletes. Bravo, taxman, bravo. No, bravo to you uh, and the gentlemen at Canadian Spirit. They're a podcast that I follow, and uh, they do very, very... Uh, fun work in regards to the paranormal goings-on in Canada. So thank you guys very much for that review. We also had one left by Fireside Canada. Uh, he says, My knowledge of wrestling doesn't go much further than childhood favorites like Jate the Snake and Junkyard Dog. And he says in brackets, now you can guess my age. Nevertheless, I'm captivated by people talking about their passions, and as I listened, I found myself sharing the excitement about an athlete I had never heard of. 
Next thing I knew, I'm watching a 50-year-old TV broadcast of Gene Kaniski battling Japan's Giant Baba, observing the otherwise reserved crowd throwing garbage into the ring and marveling at Kaniski's talent for being a heel. Enthusiastic, educational, and slightly nostalgic. Give it a listen. Thank you very much, Fireside Canada, for that five-star review. Uh, once again, if you guys leave me a five-star review on iTunes, or Podchaser, or like I said, the aforementioned newly created Facebook group. I will make sure that I read them out on the show, because if you guys are going to take the effort to do that, then the least I can do is give the effort of uh, of reading them out on the show. So everybody, thanks again for your five-star reviews. Once again, if you leave them, I'll read them, and uh, you get some air time, if you will, on Grappling with Canada. Uh, just once again, want to mention, uh, if you could go ahead and join those Facebook or that Facebook group, Listen Me Talk. Uh, on Facebook, you can find us. Just search Grappling with Canada. As well on Instagram, search Grappling with Canada. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter at 6 underscore podcast or use the search bar for Grappling with Canada. You can also email me 6sidepod at gmail.com. Uh, there's no numbers, gimmicks, or anything in that. It's straight up letters, 6 side pod at gmail.com uh, once again just want to make mention a little merch uh, uh, merchandise update um, things have been very busy around here uh, with Manitoba going into further restrictions so I'm gonna have to push all of that back a little bit I'm gonna keep you guys in the loop a uh, few of you have emailed me in regards to securing your t-shirt size uh, order if you're not familiar with what we're talking about, last month during the Gene Kaniski episode, I mentioned that we're going to be doing a limited run of 50 t-shirts, 5-0, of the classic Grappling with Canada podcast logo with the Canadian Maple Leaf flag. Uh, once they're gone, they're gone. Uh, I'm taking not pre-orders, but if you want to make sure that you have a size that you want to make sure that you uh, you are secured in getting uh, you can email me six side pod at gmail.com a few of you have done that already so uh, you guys are you got your foot in the door if you will so you can email me there uh, get in touch with me and I will make sure for sure to order a specific size or to make sure that I have one of a certain size set out for you specifically so once again I know I said it a bunch of times but six side pod at gmail.com and uh and uh, you can get your foot in the door if you will and once again just want to mention uh patreon.com or patron.com slash grappling with canada three dollars a month support the show the reality is i'm one person i i don't have a production team i don't have a social media team i don't have Anything except a wife, two kids, and three animals, and a full-time job. So it it, it uh, it's not like this is some big conglomerate expedition, if you will. And you can clearly tell that by the way that I'm trying to enunciate this. So anyways, uh, that would be the easiest way to support the show. Once again, $3 a month gets you the... Uh, shows early and as well gets you a shout out on these shows although i guess if you really wanted to shout it you could leave a five-star review and that would do it for you as well so <laughs> there are many ways to be interactive and get involved with the show uh so once again i uh, thank you everyone for checking out the show tonight 
like I said, go back in the archives if you haven't listened to our previous episodes uh, covering Gene Kaniski, Dino Bravo, Gail Kim, or Stu Hart and Stampede Wrestling. They're really fantastic listens. And uh, I look forward to seeing all of you next month as well for our next subject matter. But until then, take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone. <laughs>